0: i <music> you Hey there, Phil. Hey, Laurie. How you doing, man? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> no, you're not okay. That's why I asked you. <laughs> no, I'm not doing my best. I'm, I apologise, listeners. I think this is probably going to be released a bit later, isn't it, Laurie? And it's entirely my fault. Yeah, the podcast probably hasn't
1: been released on a Monday. If it was, then you'll know it was a super, super, superhuman feat of editing and recording. But you're just not very well, Phil.
0: I'm not very well, and I had a very busy week. and an exam to do, and it just all got delayed. And I said to Laurie, please, can we do it a bit later? Can we record a bit later? And Laurie is very kind. And obliged me, but um, I think I only got to that point a few texts down the line, didn't I?
1: <laughs> it, <laughs> it took when, a little bit clear what the what was actually going on. Yeah, no question.
0: But no, yeah, sorry, listeners. But hopefully, you'll still enjoy this week's show. We've got a great show ahead. Laurie, you've been super busy as well. You've been on BBC Oxford a couple times. Thrice, Phil. Thrice. I was on there.
1: Uh, I've been on twice for Ali Jones's early breakfast slot on Saturday morning, chatting about their finest and then also Rules Don't Apply, which is the Warren Beatty film, which we didn't actually review last week. No, we didn't. Uh, Well, and actually all the other reviews that I've done, hopefully it won't feel like I'm being too repetitive, because if you heard me on BBC Oxford, I'm going to have to say some of the same stuff this week. Oh, and by the way, massive thanks to Ali for having me on the show. It was great working with her, and also to Howard uh, as well. Thanks so much for getting me on BBC Oxford. It's always great fun, and, and they always make it really, really easy for us to be there. So thanks again.
0: Yeah. This week, we're going to be doing Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is very exciting. Mm. You've seen you've seen all the films this week. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> but, see previous reasons. So Laurie's seen Guardians of the Galaxy, The Promise as well. Yes, I saw The Promise, and then also Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. Mm. And we've also got a movie clinic sent in by one of our listeners which is very exciting, we'll live. We'll tell you more about that at the time. That's right, and this is instantly listeners. It's kind of the film Agniar Movie Clinic thing. I think we're going
1: with the clinic where listeners have a problem with a film for various reasons. They send it our way. We watch the film and we try and help the listener with their illness. We,
0: we diagnose mortality. the problem exactly. and provide a prescription or something like that
1: ones at to and then what we've been watching of course we'll be back one film each uh, I haven't decided what mine will be so. nor have I so we'll <laughs> so just see where two we get there <laughs>
0: and your emails and tweets thanks so much for keeping those coming in and thank you very much to all those people who actually voted for the British Podcast Awards yes thanks so much listeners for doing that unfortunately we didn't win but when you see who did win it kind of makes sense yeah I think <laughs>
1: One could get slightly sad and bitter about uh, the competition we were against, Phil, but that's not us, is it? No, 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 we're not sad <laughs> or bitter at all. <laughs> no, not in the slightest. But really, we genuinely mean it. Thank you so much. This podcast absolutely depends on our listeners liking it uh, and keeping on listening and sharing it with their friends as well. So the response was great and, and we really,
0: really appreciate it. And of course, we want to say a massive congratulations to our friends, the, the <laughs> Simon <laughs> Mayo and Mark Mayer podcast. Yeah. I mean, I was reading with them, Phil. They've really got that plucky underdog
1: thing going. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they don't get the appreciation they deserve. I know. They've only
1: won about 100 awards. So with time, one more
0: got added. But look, alas, look, they're are friends. They're I said we weren't going to do I'm this. joking. I'm joking. <laughs> no, but thank okay. you. I do, I do want to say a massive thank you to all those who voted. Yep, and yep, yep. Uh, really, it just means a lot. So okay. thank you very much. And as ever, listeners, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com
1: slash superbailybros. And I wanted to update you on that because when we launched Patreon, it was all about covering costs. And actually, our costs are more or less covered. Now we do this on a string string budget. What's the phrase I'm looking for? string budget. Yeah. Um, so any extra contributions, it's just an extra support for us, which is really fantastic. If you if you want to support us, um, but I did want to say because that's the reason we set
0: it up, our costs are covered. So thank you so much. Should we go on with the show? I think we better had hadn't we? I think we better had. Oh, and if you do want to get in contact with the show, we love listeners' emails so much. You can reach us at superbabybros at gmail.com or you can tweet us at superbabybros, and we love hearing from you guys. So that's do you email. Right. In. Any thought that pops into your head, get it in.
1: Now, Phil, have you ever watched the kids' TV show Octonauts? Uh, yeah, you've made me watch it Have with your really? daughter a couple of times. Oh, sorry about that. I think there are some listeners who will know exactly what I mean when I say this, but they're basically a team of animals who live in like an underwater, amazingly high-tech
0: base, and they do things like help lost seals get home. <laughs> it's like Bob the Builder meets uh, Power Rangers yeah, or something was, like that.
1: I guess so. It's a, well, we're compared, but it's all underwater, basically. It's all sea-based. Um, quite apart from anything else, I think they've got the scientific method wrong, because I thought the whole point was that you're not supposed to interfere with ecosystems and things that's
0: star trek man that's oh, like getting the, that wrong. Prime directive the prime directive
1: directive well the octonauts <laughs> should have the same thing but anyway this is a really tangential intro i have thought if i had like skills as an artist proper skills then ages ago i would have redrawn the members of the octonauts and called it guardians of the deep blue sea like guardians <laughs> of the galaxy and because the the leader of the octonauts is a polar bear And in the cartoon, he's like a cuddly little CGI guy. But if you did like a proper angry techno (laughs) polar bear leading a ragtag crew of other like ferocious animals, that would make a good spoof poster. Are you thinking Octonauts for teenagers sort of thing? Just, well, even just a meme, Phil, I'll happily (laughs) do that, whatever, or an image. But so if there's any amazing graphics people out there, you draw that. And uh, well, obviously, let me take all the revenue. (laughs) But uh, Yeah. So there's my intro, Phil. What for? Guardians of the <laughs> Galaxy Volume Two. Guardians of the Deep Mystery. Guardians of... The... Okay, wait. sorry. This is how my mind works. Look, listeners, I saw the sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy. Probably Marvel's one of their surprise hits. Would you say?
0: Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy—a completely niche sort of set of crew. Like even in the comic world, even for comic book fans, it's a very niche product. And they did the film, and it was a massive sur- surprise. I think for most people, just because it was so much fun, it was good energetic kind of campy science fiction film
1: yeah there we go well said phil yeah <laughs> i agree and in particular it had a sort of a reverence to the humor it didn't appear to take itself too seriously that some of the other ones had lacked a little bit i guess and this film is trying to recapture the magic james gunn is the director and the writer i think he wrote the last one as well and he's obviously being relied upon by disney to produce the goods yet again they're
0: doing Volume 3 with him at the helm.
1: Oh, they've already announced it, haven't mm. they? Oh, of course they have. I mean, it's no surprise, really.
0: Before you get into it, can
1: I ask what you thought of the first one? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The, the thing I remember most every time I think about that film is the opening where Peter Quill as Star-Lord, that's Chris Pratt's character, is wandering around a deserted planet on his own, He lands there and then pops on his Walkman and listens to fun 80s music while walking across kind of like an apocalyptic wasteland. And he's doing the intergalactic Indiana Jones thing. He's trying to find a treasure, isn't he?
0: Yeah, and he literally has that kind of moment where he takes off and then something happens. I
1: I thought that was so brilliant because I I didn't feel like I'd seen that before. And it it just made it seem like there was a great sense of adventure and something that was really a lot of fun. And Chris Pratt seemed incredibly likeable. So that was what that's what really characterised that film for me. And then everything else threaded nicely. It made sense that the events happened in the sequence they did. It made sense that he met all those characters and just generally it worked really well. And I'm trying to be you know, put all the positives out there, Phil, because I don't think this film, volume two,
0: comes anywhere near that level of goodness. That's a shame. Now, can I ask you, and I know this is a very selfish request, I haven't seen this film, I'm really excited to see Mm. this film. I said, I promised somebody I wouldn't see it until they could see it. Oh, is that right, really? And I'm just asking, can you, can you try and reduce the spoilers to just the first third? I won't spoil anything. I will I absolutely do my best. Okay, let's move on, because
1: we're, we're a long way in. Blogging <laughs> as per usual. Yeah, so they're all back. The Guardians of the Galaxy are the Guardians of the Galaxy now. We saw the formation of their team last time, putting down that guy, I can't remember his name, who wanted to steal an orb of magic. Z- purple power. or blue or whatever? Yeah, that guy. And having successfully done that, they're now sort of trusted by the galaxy to prevent various threats from happening. So the opening of the film, they get to a place called The Sovereign, which is a race of people who are all gold-skinned, very technologically advanced, and they manage to fend off this weird squid-looking monster who's come to devour some of their very, very valuable space batteries. And that is a really great sequence. I won't spoil it, Phil, as you've requested me not to, so (laughs) now people just have to guess what it is, but I thought that was was one of my favourite sequences of the film. Because of the way it used the action and because of the way it allowed the characters to introduce themselves it was very effective it was very good immediately after that they leave the sovereign after getting their thanks and it turns out rocket raccoon cheeky voiced by bradley cooper genetic engineered rodent has taken a little more than they really should have and i've got a clip of that moment let's hear it this is weird we've got a sovereign fleet approaching from the rear why would they do that
0: probably because rocket stole some of their batteries dude Right. He didn't steal some of those. I don't know why they're after us. What a mystery this is.
1: What were you thinking? Dude, they were really easy to steal. That's your defense? Come on. You saw how that high priestess talked down to us. Now I'm teaching her a lesson i didn't realize your motivation was altruism it's really a shame the sovereign have mistaken your intentions and are trying to kill us exactly i was being sarcastic
0: oh no you're supposed to use a sarcastic voice now i look foolish can we put the bickering on hold until after we survive this massive space battle more incoming good i want to kill some guys Listen, you can't see it, but that clip had a lot of special effects and lots of flying ships all over it. Mm, Yeah, you're right. And, you know,
1: I saw this in 3D as well. The screening that I went to provided 3D glasses and all those effects are, well, I think, improved by 3D. You've never really bought into that, have you, Phil? Um, I
0: saw Ghost in the Shell in 3D. And I quite enjoyed that, actually. That was really made for it, wasn't it? Yeah, but generally speaking... It's not really my cup of tea. Now, the problem I have with this film, man, is
1: that all the gags are still there and the style of line writing that was there before with the one-liners and the emotionless tracks, all that sort of stuff is still there and you'll laugh a little bit and and you'll enjoy it. But the story is is so subpar, it almost irritates me because it's classic Disney sequel stuff. So once you've had the first instalment, which actually has a purpose for existence, like, let's introduce these characters, let's make them a team. Now you've got to do something else to justify them appearing again. And in this case, they clearly think the answer is a soul-searching, you know, probing the depths and the history and the makeup
0: of this team. That doesn't sound like the sort of film I was expecting at all. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, I thought, I'm, I'm kind of okay with them doing more of the same, but just in a kind of new adventure with new set pieces and new sort of reasons why these characters would be saying different things and interacting in certain ways. Why would you want to go inwards when you could go outwards? Sequels well, are meant to be bigger, better. The galaxy. Aren't
1: they? Yeah, you were absolutely right, Phil. It's so weird. Like everything about this film is so to do with identity and self-worth. It becomes kind of painful, in my in my opinion anyway. The the major driving force behind the story is that Chris Pratt's apparent father turns up who is played by Kurt Russell. I won't give you any more information than that. And Chris Pratt, we know, you know, has problems. He had to leave his mother behind on Earth. That he had to watch her die, all that kind of stuff. And his father has always been a mystery for him. And there was even a little Easter egg pointing to his father being some kind of mysterious person at the end of the first film. So that's, that's what they do. But not satisfied with that, every single other character has a moment where literally they slide to the floor, maybe put their head in their hands and kind of go... Man you know life, my life has been
0: really difficult,
1: and it, I, I found it tedious, and I found it fake, it and it feel a bit
0: like a group meeting.
1: It, it literally felt like and this is a line I've used about four times in the print review and in all my radio appearances, it feels like the most efficient and exciting group
0: workshop in the galaxy. Yes, <laughs> Phil. It feels like you're on a psychiatrist's couch, and it's annoying. Is there anything that redeems it at all? Is there anything which you think, yes, that is fantastic, that's really good? Well, I guess some of the jokes are okay, but actually the way that the jokes get used is quite revealing
1: of the lack of drive behind the story, because time and again they rely on Drax, the Dave Bautista, the wrestler's character, who, try and describe his character for us, Phil.
0: His character is very literal. He takes things very literally and he says things that are on his mind. There's no sort of filter at all and he doesn't seem to understand social conventions. Yeah, exactly. So almost everything that comes
1: out of his mouth is pre-designed as a joke, right? And almost every scene, he's in almost all of them. They've arranged the story so that he can be where the action is almost all the time. And they rely on him to lift really dull scenes time and again. So after a while, you see what they're doing. And you think, well, come on, like, I get it. Let's, let's have something new. And Rocket Raccoon, Bradley Cooper's character, had a kind of ornery charm to him last time. Rough edges, but he kind of won you over. And his relationship with Groot was really important. In this film, it, it's just not there. Actually, he and Groot have split up quite a lot. Oh, really? That he, seems like a massive mistake. Yeah, and he's just annoying. He annoys everyone and is annoyed by everyone. He's obnoxious,
0: isn't he? Yeah,
1: and that gets really tiring. I think Zoe Saldana's Gamora, who is presented as this really like tough woman who's incredible and is the sort of balancing act to star lord's quirkiness she's just boring in the film they introduce nebula again her robot sister and basically they form an entire side plot that honestly if you cut out of the film would have made no difference whatsoever except to bring one character from one place to another and that annoyed me it was such a blatant side plot writing uh, and then it also uh, Yon, what's he called? Yondu, Chris Pratt's uh, surrogate dad kind of guy,
0: the kind of blue guy with a wh- he has that whistling sort of magic stick thing. That's right, the whistling dart, which
1: they use again in a irresponsible way. Uh, he has a much bigger role, and he also it's all about his psyche and his past and i hope i'm building a picture for you they bring it all back they use the same painting for it the same coat of paint is on it
0: but they go but, the wrong direction they go backwards rather than forwards
1: well or they just stay still because it it's completely inconsequential basically and i think everyone's sights will be set on guardians of the galaxy volume 3 no more obviously so D- disney and the director's sights are already set on volume 3 there are four Mid and post-credit sequences. I heard film. it was five. Is it five? Well, I, I only f- saw four. <laughs> oh dear, uh, too much. Yeah.
0: So is this setting up loads and loads of things in the Marvel universe? It's obviously linked to the the Avengers and all that sort of stuff. Is there sort of uh, tendrils of linking up? Is I, it Disney? I didn't
1: spot them trying to do any linking yet. I think what I spotted was them trying to do Volume Three, and like Sylvester Stallone is in this movie, and he plays what amounts to a cameo, and then by the end you realise they've got bigger plans. Along with some other faces that I cannot, I just, uh, what, are they, what are they doing there? Sounds like you really didn't like this film. I didn't look. I, I, I liked the set dressing. I didn't like what was at the heart of it.
0: Grade quickly before, <laughs> before it goes really
1: dark. I apologise. Uh, for me, this one just gets a B minus. I think it's quite disappointing the average for the promise of the first film. It lacks ambition and it's just doing the churn. It's doing the standard three film churn.
0: So do you think this basically is just a rejig for Volume
1: 3, then? Yeah, it's getting everything ready for Volume 3, trying to build up, you flesh out the characters, build up the hype, whatever. And people will go and watch Volume 3, so it's not a problem. But Are this, you excited for Volume 3 at all? It's definitely filler. I suppose so. If they can return to what made the first one good, then yes. If it's a good adventure with high stakes, I'm up for it. Any bonuses? I did really like some of the design of the Sovereign, and actually that was one of the best things in the whole film in terms of the creative approach to it, because they're these gold-skinned race of people. They have loads and loads of ships. They're chasing the Guardians down in that clip. But the way that it works is because they're sort of so pristine and perfect, they don't actually go into the ships. They fly them all by remote control, and it was just a clever little extra step that they went in the production team to make it as if it's a video game as well for the gold people while they're flying the planes. So they have them all on, like, um, moving... You know, like, when you go to the arcade the and you ride on a motorbike? Yeah, yeah, They yeah. have that kind of thing, and they have video game sounds coming out of their uh, screens, and they have people going, oh, come on, yeah, go. Oh, man, you suck at this. Like, it was, <laughs> it was just clever, and that was nice, and I, I wish there was more of that, basically, yeah.
0: More fun, basically. But
1: basically, yeah. I, I'm not that bothered about
0: their psyche, you know? You want to have is. fun. It's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. yeah. One last thing, and this is the last thing. Soundtrack, any good? People love the first soundtrack. I'll tell you what I really thought about this is that
1: everyone, their cards have been shown, right? Let's do, goes back to the 80s. We can have fun. We can make it cheesy. We can make it nostalgic. And actually, guess what? There was some good music that came out 30 years ago. All, I'm totally <laughs> on board with that. This one, it really reveals what they're doing a lot more because uh, in more cases than was really acceptable, the lyrics of the songs directly relate to what was going on in the uh, in the scene. And that just, that's something I didn't really like.
0: <sighs> yeah, you go. I exactly. Have I ruined it for you, Phil? <laughs> no, you haven't read it for me I at ha- all. I don't think I've spoiled anything. No, you I haven't have... spoiled anything for me at all. I'm excited to see it still, but now I'm going in expecting something which isn't what I hoped it would be. Well, do you know what we've already got?
1: And I'll throw in one little tweet here, listeners, because we've already received uh, a tweet from someone who's seen it, uh, Alistair got in touch and said, at Super Belly Bro, saw the new Guardians earlier, and it's an insane, hilarious Technicolor space romp, easily in top five of all Marvel films. So clearly my opinion is not the only one. <laughs> does that mean there. you get a minus one? Well, technically it does, but he hasn't said minus <laughs> one. So let's leave it at that. There you go. Would
0: Douglas
1: Rekovich, please report
0: to the reception? Oh, uh, hello. Uh, I'm here because... I've got a problem. My friend Stephen said I should watch this film, seeking a friend for the end of the world, and it just doesn't make sense to me. What's it saying? What's it trying to convey about humanity? Help me, Doctor, please. You do sound very lost, sir.
1: Okay, please head through to the clinic, and uh, the doctors will see you immediately.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Are you enjoying this movie clinic thing, Phil? the. Frame? Yeah, I am. I'm enjoying the little bit of acting we it get to do. It always sounds like quite a depressing waiting room <laughs> with the ambience. Well, uh, but there we go. Hey, Stephen, thank you very much
0: for sending through the first sort of official movie clinic movie. And that was, what was it, Phil? Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. This is a 2012 film starring Steve Carell and Kieran Knightley. That's right. And it was written and directed by, I th- I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Loren Scafaria, who's an Italian-American uh, director. So she wrote and directed it. She also wrote Nick and Nora's Influent Playlist, that mm. Michael Sarah and the girl from Two Broke Girls yeah. film.
1: Now, Stephen, we both watched this and we thought long and hard about it. And uh, first things first, listeners, there will be spoilers for this movie. It was out in 2012, so you've had a few years to watch it. It's not very good, so <laughs> you haven't missed all that much uh, if you do listen through and hear our spoilers. And my first comment to Stephen, uh, who basically tweeted and said, what is this film all about?, I think the reason, the major reason you're confused is that it's just a bad film. I think it's tonally wrong. It doesn't know whether to be a black comedy, an absurdist comedy, a sort of poignant drama, or a romance it doesn't know what it's doing it just kind of goes for an indie quirky vibe slightly hipsterish I think it's fair to say no more so obvious than when Steve Carell's choice for the end of the world is to play a, a bit of vinyl film because vinyl is so superior to CDs <laughs> it's a hipster movie that just doesn't know what it's doing in my opinion. The final mission to save mankind has failed. The 70 mile wide asteroid known as Matilda is set to collide with Earth in exactly three weeks time and we'll be bringing you our countdown to the end of days along with all your classic rock favorites
0: so uh, feel free to wear your casual friday clothing pretty much any day of the week and if anyone wants to be cfo <laughs> anyone so what are you doing with the rest of your life catching up on some me time find god maybe move around some chairs maybe i'll run into your own orgy or something well, that sounds nice Listen, Elsa, you don't have to come next week or ever if you don't want to. It's okay. You fighting me? There's just no need. Forget it. See you next week, Mr. Dodge.
1: I regret my entire life.
0: Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye now. We should set up Dodge with Karen, don't you think? It's everything I never wore. (laughs)
1: The sky is falling. I've been with a different girl every day. They don't care about diseases. Or are you gonna call them back or are you related? You know? No, I don't. It's, I don't.
0: I you don't. don't know. <laughs> Hello? You okay?
1: No! I'm never gonna see my family again.
0: Would you like to come in?
1: I won't steal anything if you don't kill me. Agreed. Who's the girl? Is she the
0: one that got away? Well, they all got away, but she was the first, yeah. Let's go find her. We need to go right now! You, you drive wheel. me to where I need to go. I doing? get you to your family.
1: Hi, welcome to Frenzy's, where everyone's your friend. I don't
0: think you guys are still open. And you know what? It's his birthday today. Why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> Happy <laughs> birthday! No.
1: no. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, she go. she
0: go. <laughs> I think what's is notable is the the way that this world is put put forward is slightly different than you might expect for a kind of apocalyptic end of the world scenario. Yeah. Because there's a lot of normalcy to this, this world. Steve Carell still has, uh, dinner parties with his friends and they go and they have a nice sit down dinner and they have chats and jokes and they do a bit of dancing and they have a bit of drinking. But then to all of this normalcy, there's this kind of very dark edge to it when suddenly one of the people at the party says, Oh, I've got some heroin. And everyone's like, Yay. <laughs> and then they all go and say, Oh, right. Let's get the dental nurse to, to, to get it ready for us. She knows what to do. And so suddenly you've got people with, all the normal sensibilities of society, but without any of the, the restraint of sort of wisdom. There's Lice, no fear Lice of not death go on. or yeah. losing a job or anything like that, because it's all a waste of time. Amongst all of this, eventually, uh, Steve Carell's character comes across Kieran Knightley, who turned out to be his neighbour, and they just never really crossed paths before. And they sort of form a bizarre sort of friendship, and it's kind of like a road movie. They both decide they want to get to some destination. Steve Carell wants to go and see his old high school sweetheart who he lost touch with, and Kira Knightley wants to get to a plane because she wants to go back to see her family in England. I think ultimately this film is a very confusing film at the end. And I can see why Stephen would be like, what? What on earth? Because the way this film ends is kind of tragic and bizarre and just sort of not how a film should really end. I don't see how you could watch this film and then have a happy feeling by the end of it. No, because it is literally the end of the world. They, they don't kind of shy away from that. It is the end of the world. And so even though you have this sort of blossoming romance and niceties amongst lots of sort of tragedy and rioting and things like that, it just all seems very hollow. And so I don't know really what the director wanted to give the audience.
1: Yeah, I I think what she said was that she wanted to do a romance and try and do the sort of traditional, I guess, rom-com approach to things, but add that sense of a ticking time bomb to it and see how that would change things. And, you know, it's no surprise, listeners, that it is Keira Knightley and Steve Carell's character end up falling for each other because they spend so much time together. Even though Steve Carell is looking for the one that got away, You know, he realizes Kira Knightley might as well be that girl as well. And I think what she would like to think the theme is, is that a lot of your happiness and a lot of meaning in life can be found more or less where you are in the randomness of your own situation. Things when you take away the sense of what could be or what might happen in the future, often what is just there is full of meaning is that about right would you think i mean that's about the only theme i I can kind of imagine she was going for because the themes that i'm sure she wasn't aiming for but are quite strongly expressed are things like life only has meaning if you have a romantic partner and the very worst thing in the world would be to face the end of the world without anyone there Yeah. So it's a film that says loneliness is the worst thing ever. And if you
0: are lonely, then life is meaningless to you, which is not a nice, happy. Exactly. So, yeah, but I I wouldn't say it so much that I think the film might be sort of doing the kind of typical thing of saying, oh, what would you do if the world ended? What would how would you how would you be different? And the film sort of says, oh, you wouldn't really change who you are. You're who you are would stay the same. But it does address that sort of usual thing of like, oh, you'd start regressing the things you didn't do in life. And there is that in this film. He starts sort of wondering, oh, I wish, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd pursued that. And maybe I re- wish I could reconcile things with this person, that person. But slowly the film seems to move away from that sort of whole world. And instead, suddenly, kind of like you or what you were saying, Laurie, Steve Carell's character starts sort of not looking backwards and thinking of what could have been and all the mistakes and, and being lonely. Instead, he starts looking forwards. And even though the forwards is two weeks, he decides two weeks with Keira Knightley is is better to spend with her something new, something exciting than it is to be wistfully remembering the past. I mean, this is definitely spoilers, but there's that line which uh, Dodge, Steve Carell's character says, which is to Kira Knightley as he's putting her on a plane, you are the love of my life, which is kind of very bizarre because he's just met her and there's only two weeks left of his life. But, but he then still therefore says
1: she is because in two weeks his life will be over. So therefore she is the love of his life.
0: And then also with the ending, right in the kind of final scene, he's sat with Keira Knightley sort of discussing what her character was like, what, what her family is like, even though there's no reason to kind of know what, what her past is like. He still wants to know her. That's what he chooses to do.
1: That's the thing that's most meaningful and enjoyable to him. Connection yeah. with this one person. Yeah, and I suppose you could say she was also aiming to say, well, what's really the difference between the world ending in three weeks and the world ending who knows when? And why is it that we construct a lot of artifice uh, and let our lives be ruled by random things when actually death could come at any point and the world could end at any point? You know, all that kind of stuff. The problem I have with that is that... I don't think she succeeds in that because I don't think anyone acts in the way that you would act if the world was going to end in three weeks. In fact, in a very strange way, uh, I was almost cheering when the riots started happening. Because yeah, because it's yeah, like, this, actually happened? Where is this <laughs> yeah. happening?
0: Like, what, yeah, I, I felt the same way. It takes a long time for the world to properly start crumbling. And and you, are supposed to think, oh, maybe that is how it would happen. Everyone would t-
1: people would turn up to their jobs the next day. I just think, no, no, they wouldn't. Like, I think I think it was a real failure in in actually trying to explore that m- a motif. And it reminds me of those films that I personally don't get much joy out of, where the big question is something like, what if a robot had feelings? Because robots will never have feelings. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. So it's a really th- fruitless pointless exercise that is really sillily done it just feels smug because there's nothing about it that is realistic or actually thoughtful it's like what if the world was ending and there were only shallow people oh yeah and one other thing uh, that this film says again i don't think she meant to say this but this is what it says is that if you've got a cleaner cleaners are so stupid that they won't even realize the world is ending and they'll make comments to you about coming back next week to uh, to clean your apartment again because their life is so simple and so uncluttered by things like actually thinking about stuff um that they're, they're just happy to keep cleaning your house that was a very bizarre joke that they kept on returning to and it just seemed kind of
0: slightly racist yeah, almost.
1: racist just really dumb so i think that that little scene is a pretty good litmus test for how deep the film actually is and that's where i'll stop <laughs> that's
0: suddenly an explosion is for- that too much <laughs> it's suddenly like you realize what you want to say about this film I have to admit it was bad it was really bad Stephen I found it very confusing and it was interesting trying to be being forced to think what does this say what does this mean it's an odd film we'd be interested to know what your thoughts were Stephen as well so if kind of that's our diagnosis of what the film was saying and what it was about and what it's suggesting about humanity if you agree let us know if you thought it was something completely different we'd love to hear from you so email in again if anyone else has seen this film seeking a friend to for the end of the world I I always forget the title
1: yeah bad title
0: email in superbabybros at gmail.com or tweet us at superbabybros. let us know what you thought whether or not you agree with the doctors Mm. Uh it Uh, it does make me worry Phil because
1: I I think this is just a bad film with not very much to say and I hope what we haven't just done is ranted and rambled (laughs) for the last 10 minutes or whatever it is uh, and hopefully we'll be able to give you a proper answer for another film
0: yeah so if you've got your own suggestions of uh, movie problems you don't understand this film you don't understand a particular scene in a film or whatever it is a character just send it our way we'll do our best we'll have a little chat we'll have a think but yeah I'd love to hear from you guys that's the movie clinic that's right call the doctors next
1: Now Phil, I'm going to do two fairly quick movie reviews not because the films don't deserve good reviews they're going to be great reviews they're just going to be short quick fire uh, but boom, boom. just so we, the episode doesn't go on too long and also only I've seen them and I think I'm getting sick of my voice so <laughs> I'm not sick. I double. can never get sick of your voice It no, can't be true uh, Listeners, I've been I'm to see to it Sorry. What? <laughs> How very Dave <dangerous. laughs> Interrupts my flow I have been to see The Promise which is Terry George's film uh, focusing on what uh, happened to the Armenian people towards the end of the Ottoman Empire. And then also Lady Macbeth, which is a directorial debut from William Oldroyd and a more or less acting debut from Florence Pugh, which is an adaptation of a Nikolai Leskov novel called Lady Macbeth of a Mutsedsk district. So there you go. Both sound thrilling. They are thrilling. Which one should I do first? Let's do The Promise first. You reckon? Yeah. The Promise. Yeah, as I said, it's focusing on the Armenian people and what happened to them during the Ottoman Empire. This stars Oscar Isaac as an Armenian doctor or at least an Armenian wannabe doctor, but he's quite poor. He decides to get engaged to someone so that he can collect a dowry, travel to Constantinople and train as a doctor. And while he's there, he meets his wealthy uncle who introduces him to Charlotte Le Bon, who is another Armenian woman, but she lived and trained in Paris as a dancer. She's around the house and he's kind of intrigued by her. But she is currently sort of going out with an American journalist called Chris Myers, who is played by Christian Bale. And he is there researching the Armenian people and particularly looking into the way that the Ottoman Empire is behaving. Have you spotted the love triangle yet, Phil? Yes. Oscar Isaacs, Christian Bale, Charlotte Le bon. Exactly right Phil That's right And Terry George uh, And a co-writer Robin Swicord, Who was involved In The Curious Case Of Benjamin Button have decided that This romantic love triangle Is the way for us To experience What they want to be A sweeping historical epic Focusing on various Different things That the Armenian people Had to suffer Um, And it is horrific A lot of the stuff Based in history Is really terrible to watch And it's really A good thing That this is being Put on the screen And I don't want to Take away from that at all It, It was fascinating to me Full stop To have a film that ...that was set in Turkey in that way. And I think, you know, a lot of the shots are really beautiful to look at. A lot of the countryside is incredible. Definitely a mix of CGI in there. But the problem is the romance. The romance is so subpar, it's really, really irritating. Oscar Isaac, for the calibre of actor that he is, does not get to shine at all. His character Mikael is so boring... It's actually irritating. And I understand why it had to be that way, because he sort of needs to be characterless so that he can be thrust into any one of a number of terrible situations, you know, being in prison or mingling with high society or being in a university lecture. He's got to be able to do all those things, but it means he's kind of dull. There's not really anything about him. There's no edge to him. Yeah, other than that he's an Armenian having to suffer terrible things. And then Chris Myers, uh, this character played by Christian Bale, is just, he's, he's just kind of annoyingly shallow. He's a journalist, and journalists will love it because they're portrayed as heroes trying to expose the truth. But it's, it's so ridiculous that in the context of everything he's doing, he would even remotely care about the love triangle thing that gets thrown in that his character becomes a bit of a joke. There are scenes where he would literally witness something awful and then escape just in time with his camera and his notebook and then come back and be like what's he doing here? What have you guys been hanging out without me sort of thing. Like mm. what? <laughs> come home and tell these two Armenian people what you're seeing instead. How about that? Maybe that's more important. I don't know. Like and that kind of thing can work. You can make a romance work in that situation. Famously, Titanic did exactly this, right? So you saw all of the ship and all different kinds of social things go on. The relationship
0: on. was an excuse to see the ship, wasn't it?
1: Exactly. And, it, you know, a lot of people criticise that. I think it's okay. This film, they, they just don't have the writing chops to make it work. And instead, the romance part sticks out like a sore thumb even potentially trivializes the actual historical content of what they're doing
0: do we have a clip for this
1: at we all? do actually sorry i've been on a roll because i'm trying to do it fast okay here's a clip and you can hear chris myers being that kind of irritating journalist saying oh look there's some dodgy stuff going on here to do with the germans giving the uh, ottoman empire some warships so here we go
0: oh my god what was that Welcome. Ah, you beautiful. Thank you. You see the, you see? German,
1: German battleships? Yes. Gift from the Turkish Navy. Perfectly, perfectly innocent gift from Teutonic friends to the Turkish Navy.
0: Turkey has every right to have a strong Navy. The Empire needs to protect its borders.
1: The Ottoman Empire wants its borders to stretch from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. And what these fellas, these Germans, want your sultan to declare a holy war. against the infidel. The British, the French, and the Russian. So actually, that's quite a good clip, I think. It sounds interesting and it sounds provocative. And I think that is the film that it wants to be, but it isn't the film that it is.
0: I have to say... The idea for this film, the idea of a kind of sweeping romantic epic, uh, kind of love in the difficult times of, of war and things like that, or, or hardship, that sounds like a film, a kind of classic film, which hasn't been done for a while. And in that sense, I was quite intrigued by it. I kind of wanted to see this film. But you're saying it kind of just fails, falls flat? It's The, the romance is really poor. The characters are not interesting. So you don't
1: care enough. And... The other side of it is that because they want to show so many different angles, it moves along at quite a rate, and it it almost becomes ridiculous that Oscar Isaac's character sees all of this. It's quite coincidental, the way that he moves from situation to situation, so that it doesn't really work. You don't get carried along. You don't feel the sweep and the momentum of things because you only experience it through him, and he just rapidly experiences every kind of hardship. Does that make sense? Mm. So you don't feel the political movements... You don't feel the change. You don't tend to see a wide picture of what's happening in the country. You just see Oscar Isaac as he rapidly moves from scenario to scenario. Conveyor belt of like yeah, scenarios. Yeah, I mean, there's a great example there with Tom Hollander, who was Corky in The Night Manager. He, he's in here, and his scene is about three minutes long. He's barely there. It's a good example. That whole sequence, and um, that's in a prisoner of, of war camp, is so fast, it almost becomes inconsequential and you forget about it. Uh, So I I think it was poorly done. I think it's actually badly directed and edited as well. Terry George did Hotel Rwanda and got a lot of plaudits for that. But the the key scene that showed me that the editor... And that's Rosenblum is the surname. I think he's involved in Braveheart, so he's not a small fry. They just weren't in sync. And the best way you can see this is when Chris Myers, Christian Bell's character, gets in a car to drive away from a horse that's chasing him. (laughs) They've obviously done three shots, and they've cut them together in such a dull way that the horses are different distances away from the car as they cut between shots. Oh no! And he looks so bored in the car. There's absolutely no excitement. It doesn't feel like a chase. It still feels like the B roll footage where they've, you know, there's a little watermark in the bottom right saying "put chase sequence here." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. It's really badly done. Is um, Christian Bale any good? He's fine. I don't really know what he's doing in this film. I think he's the sort of actor who should be able to spot a fairly average script and maybe there might be political reasons for this because famously this is something that the Ottoman Empire has never admitted in the terms that the rest of the world portray it as. So it's entirely possible that actors want to do it because they want to be involved in shining a light on something that has been sort of hidden uh, in history so far. And that is a very good goal, isn't it? It just should have been a better film. What's the grade? C. Wow, quite low then, quite low. It's two and three quarter hours. No one's got that time. (laughs) And any bonuses? Uh, No, no bonuses, because we've got to move on. I wanted to get that one out of the way, because that was more negative, so that I can talk about Lady Macbeth. Uh, And now this is great, listeners, so you can be relieved already. This is, uh, as I said, based on a book called Lady Macbeth of the Mutsensk District, uh, a Russian novel. Alice Birch has adapted it to be a film set in sort of late period Jane Austen-ness. I'm describing it like that so you get an instant picture. Late 1800s, mahogany rooms, country estate, quite quiet, quite rugged farmland all around and very sort of solid manners and proprietary things in place. Or Propriety. What's the phrase I'm looking for? I have no idea, man. I'm not normally one for phrases. Florence Pugh, an emerging talent, fantastic British emerging talent, plays Catherine, who's a young woman forced into a marriage with uh, this guy, Alexander, who's the owner of the estate They don't like each other. He doesn't appear to be interested in her romantically or or even sexually. Um, She doesn't seem to be interested in him. The father-in-law is staying there and he's very, very harsh. So her sort of general living situation, she feels almost like a prisoner and a servant. They keep making comments to her about how you should really stay indoors, Catherine, because that is what is fitting for a woman. You shouldn't be outside. And if I decide as the husband, I'm going to go away for long trips, you still can't go outside. You still got to stay inside the house. So she is naturally hemmed in into this awful situation. So it's not really a surprise that Catherine is unhappy at this state of affairs. And it's not really that much of a surprise that she takes action about it. While her husband is away, she spots quite a handsome farmhand. Doesn't seem like a particularly nice guy. She encounters him being quite mean to Anna, the maid, but she's interested in him partly because he represents something dangerous and something wild and something energetic. And she's bored, shut up indoors. So they kind of start an affair. Something gets kindled while the uh, father-in-law is away and while the husband is away. But then when the father-in-law returns, you know, there's a question there. Can they keep it hidden? Is he going to find out? And if he does find out, what on earth are they going to do about this situation? Because it was a big, big deal for a lady to dishonor her husband in that way at the time. And the entire rest of the film is about the actions she takes to protect herself and this man, this farmhand that she feels she's falling in love with uh, and how that escalates into something that no one was expecting as time goes on. You have a clip? We do have a clip. Thanks for reminding me, Phil. So in this clip, he have Florence talking to Sebastian, this handsome farmhand. He's played by Cosmo Jarvis, by the way. And you can tell there's a bit of an edge to this conversation, even though it appears to be fairly lovey-dovey. And it's set amidst the beautiful sort of countryside of England by a stream. So here you go. Do you love me? Of course. Do you adore me? Of course. Could you do without me? Did you do without me? It's husbands and wives that kiss like that.
0: Did your husband kiss you, <laughs> Catherine? <laughs> she won't speak. You know I shan't be parted from your life, Sebastian. Through hell and high water I will follow you to the cross,
1: to the prison, prison. to the grave, to, to the sky. sky. I'd rather stop you breathing
0: than have you doubt how I feel. What sort of uh, genre is this film? I'm kind of getting confused. Is it a, an erotic kind of thriller or drama, or is it more just a period piece? What, what's what sort of tone well, is it? I'm, gl- going for? I'm
1: glad you asked that because I think it's quite hard to pin down, actually, especially without spoiling anything. I'll tell you, it's not an erotic thriller. There are, there are erotic scenes in it, but they're not anything like you describe. the Handmaidens erotic scenes, for example. Mm, okay. uh, it's much more a character study of Florence Pugh's Catherine and what how she ends up behaving and what she ends up doing. And it's been described a lot by the cast and crew and by the PR team as, you know, an amazingly feminist story with this incredibly strong woman at the core. I I didn't particularly think it was a feminist story. I thought it was a fascinating story about this woman, and I was fascinated by her trying to figure out her motives and trying to figure out how I felt towards her because of what she ends up doing and who she ends up becoming. Uh, But I think labelling it in that way is a bit unhelpful because it's going to turn some people off probably, Uh, And it also funnels all the interesting themes of the film down a very specific route, whereas I think it's much broader than that. So I think go being ready to be impressed by a really amazing female protagonist, but I wouldn't let your thoughts kind of get forced down a particular path, if that makes sense. One thing to really look out for is I was blown away by the direction of this movie. William Oldroyd is—it's his first feature film, if you can believe that. He's done a lot more work on the stage, and it really shows from the way that he uses the camera. This is a guy who's really kept up with emerging sort of technology and trends, and so he seems to have been able to make the transition seamlessly. What I love was the static camera, and we talk about this a lot, but he sets up the camera completely still, uh, perfectly framed shots uh, of all the rooms in the house. And what's more, he returns to the exact same shot time and time again. There's also a a sort of panning shot, a very slow panning shot of a forest and a carriage through the trees. And it's interesting, it reminded me of props uh, or sound effects on stage because you kind of think, well, why would you show a carriage coming to the house exactly the same way three or four times? And then actually you realise that there's a power in that, isn't there? Because if everything around that shot has changed and the context of the shot has changed, then presenting it the same way it triggers things in your mind and your memory that then are affected by the emotions and the plot. Does
0: that make sense? So you fill the kind of the repeated nature of something with new information. Exactly.
1: I thought that was such a brilliant and such a clever thing to do. And I've heard him talking about it since. And they make a comment that when they when they have the male characters around, they wanted to emphasize their sort of natural dominance in that time. Uh, It was a very almost patriarchal society. And so they wanted to have an ordered camera, everything sort of precise and uh, and then when Catherine is sort of let loose a little bit, it's much freer and there's more use of handheld camera. And I think that's all true. I just think there's, there's even more power to it than emphasising the male dominance aspect of things. So I, I thought it was really fantastic and I was very, very impressed by it. And it made the ruggedness of the English countryside really stand out without the need for any sort of over-the-top effects. You know, you heard in that clip, there's all that natural wind being thrown in uh, on the foley and stuff and the way that it was recorded. So... It's amazing, like the subtlety and the restrained use of the camera, I thought was an exceptionally good tool for promoting the power of the uh, the landscape and the characters themselves. So that was great. And then Florence Pugh is just amazing, man. She That Geordie accent she has there is not her natural accent uh, at all. Oh, uh, right. Okay. No, no, she's got a very standard sort of Queen's English voice and I've very rarely seen such an intense and intriguing performance from someone so young I th- she's 21 now I believe and may have been even younger when she was filming this and you just she was younger yeah you, thanks yeah <laughs> and she was like you just watch her transform and it is a very believable transformation not once was I not convinced by her and instead everything from the way she holds herself to her expressions communicates uh, an extraordinary depth uh, to her character that is opaque, you can't see beyond her expression. It, it's great. I thought it was those two things in particular were real standouts for me. And and there's also hardly any music at all, almost nothing. Just very very occasional swells, which reminds me of Jackie in some ways,
0: which you loved, yeah. We know we know you love that. Yeah,
1: film. I mean the music isn't quite as amazing as that when it appears, but the restrained use of it was was great. So I think a lot of people will see this thinking it's a period piece, like you said, or any one of those things, and will be surprised by it but I think that's a good thing. I think it's surprising filmmaking that doesn't have a clear message particularly, but certainly leaves you thinking about a lot of things.
0: Do you recommend the film?
1: Absolutely. It gets an A from me. Really? That high? Yes. Any bonuses? I I tell you what I did think was that, there are some filmmakers who just know how to use detail really well, and again, maybe this is a stage thing, but you know Peter Jackson, one of the scenes that people often think about in the Lord of the Rings trilogy as being powerful and uncomfortable is that eating scene. With exactly. with uh,
0: what's-his-face singing.
1: And particularly it's the tomatoes, right, when he bites mm. into the tomatoes and the seeds spray everywhere. I think I admire um filmmakers who can use eating well. There's a, there's a couple of good sequences surrounding people eating meals and in particular it's the clanking of the steel cutlery on the bone china plates that makes everything feel so empty and so cold. It was just very very clever and you know the hard wood of the floors hearing people's like heavy boots clomp across it. It was just great uh, attention to sound design and realistic environments that really make you feel claustrophobic and everything else. So is that a bonus or is that just another thing? No, that's just a whole <laughs> other point, but that's fine. There you go. Oh, right, there we go. That's me done. There we go. Thank you very much for staying with us, listeners. Uh, promises one to avoid. Lady Macbeth, definitely one to see. <laughs> yeah, that jingle means it's time for what we've been watching this week. Phil, what have you seen this week? This week, I've seen The Amazing Spider-Man number two. Mm, and I have watched Birdman, the Oscar-winning best picture.
0: Yeah, with Michael Keaton, right?
1: That's correct, yeah. Okay, do you want to do Spider-Man first?
0: Yes, Amazing Spider-Man 2.
1: Every day, I wake up knowing
0: that the more people I try to save, the more enemies I will make. And it's just a matter of time
1: before I face those with more power... I can overcome.
0: I'm so sorry, I'm late. I had a traffic thing.
1: Did your traffic jam have anything to do with being, I don't know, shot at by machine guns? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, was implied. that was implying that.
0: <laughs>
1: Peter Parker. There he is, boy.
0: You're going to want to see this. Oscorp. And you under surveillance. Why? Isn't that the question of the day? There's something you're not telling me yet, May. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. My name is Richard Parker. I have discovered what Oscorp was going to use my research for. I have a responsibility
1: to protect the world from what I know they're capable of. What is all this stuff?
0: The future.
1: We literally can change the world. What about
0: Peter? Not everyone has a happy ending. So Laurie, you might have remembered that I did The Amazing Spider-Man on what we've been watching on yes. the other podcast yep, yep, yep. a while back. and it was scathing to it. I really, really, really didn't like it. But funny enough, when I first saw that film in cinemas, I thought... It's not a good film, but I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Yeah. But then watching that one again, I hated it. Really? what uh, The first one? The first one. Okay. This one, Amazing Spider-Man 2, same director, same cast. You've got Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. You've got Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. It's directed by Mark Webb, the same guy who did 500 Days of Summer, Mm. a film which I'm a big fan of. And I'm not, yes. (laughs) And this film also stars Jamie Foxx as Electro. He's the villain of the piece. And then Dan DeHaan or something? Dan DeHaan. Yeah, he's great. He was in A Cure for Wellness and he's going to be in Valerian. And he was also in Chronicle. Yes, that's right. He plays Harry Osborne in this film. He's like a sickly Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah. Watching this film for the first time, I really didn't like it. I did not like it. I thought it was a really messy, clunky film. And watch it again. I think it's a really messy, clunky film. Oh, really? But what's worse all the same? What's funny is the fact that the things which were good in the first film, they're still there and they're still strong and there's still things to like in this film but all the things, all the problems of the first film proliferate. They become worse. Okay. In this film, you have a bigger budget, more, 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 and more of the bad stuff, which makes the film ultimately worse. I don't think the, the production or the direction or anything like that is bad, but the, the writing, the, the whole concept of the film is more of the bad part. It's funny because we were just talking, and I,
1: I I think it's quite hard to mess up Spider-Man. He's one of the most popular characters for a reason. And then when you've got Andrew Garfield playing him, He's a good, he's a good guy for that role, and he's he, really think, good as
0: Peter Parker. I and think.
1: in the first one, he was he was good, wasn't he? And then Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. I mean, that's that's a, a real coup. Now that we
0: know she's Oscar winning. So, how how do they get it wrong? Well, funny enough, the, those bits they can't get wrong, and they don't get it wrong. Andrew Garfield is great as Peter Parker, and he's really good as Spider Man. You believe him as kind of this uh, young guy making quips and sort of wanting to be heroic, but also kind of getting weighed down by the consequences. I think Andrew Garfield can do the kind of light and dramatic really easily and well, and then also. Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy is very lively and energetic and beautiful and charming and they have a really good chemistry I mean they dated in real life did they yeah for quite, quite a few years nice but around UK magazine film. Uh,
1: extra info there. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> but I think you can just tell that they have a real natural chemistry with each other that is on screen and you get to enjoy it yeah and the scenes with uh, Peter and Gwen are the best bits of the film right the way through the film gets ultimately bogged down in surprisingly enough movie building movie universe building really now that's something i don't remember but tell me more phil you know i like to beat that drum well they were already discussing how they were going to do a sinister six which is kind of like the villain team of spider-man's world and there was a shot of all these different uh, robotic parts that kind of allude to different spider-man villains in the film there was a mysterious figure who sort of said oh we need to get them together and oh this is the first step or something like that Also, you've got all this weird sort of background story with Peter Parker's father. And apparently he was some sort of super scientist who was trying to protect the world from what they could do. (laughs) And Peter's discovering what he discovers a secret bunker in like a train or something like that. It's very confused and it completely misses the point of what Spider-Man is, which is essentially he's a simple average guy. He's a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. He's the guy down the road. He's trying to do good and it costs him. That's the whole point of this character. That's all you need to do. And like you said, I think this kind of, if you stick to that formula, you can't really go wrong. But they decide, no, we need to make this massive franchise out of this. We need to make sure this one's bigger and more people want to see this Amazing Spider-Man 3. And so they add in all this stuff and it just gets bogged down and they miss the kind of core parts, which is film is about story and it's about characters that you care about. Yeah and you don't care about Jamie Foxx, and you don't care about da- Dane DeHaan. Well, I mean, fortunately, Phil, I'm actually taking something
1: positive away from this, which is that with all that cinematic universe building, and all this sort of, oh, maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do this, it can be stopped, because it <laughs> flopped and failed, and they're reigniting Spider-Man for the third time.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it? It, can, it like, literally stopped this franchise <laughs> dead in its tracks, so much so that Sony were like, yeah, we don't know how to deal with this character. Here you go, Marvel, you can hand him back and just give us the money. We just want the money, but you could do what you want with him. One of the most ridiculous parts of the film is... Elect- Jamie Foxx's character, who is this sniveling, bumbling idiot who then gets electrocuted with eels and gets this electric power <laughs> and the most ridiculous thing is his transformation he becomes sort of this blue skinned uh, guy which I thought looks, the effect was alright looks quite good but in the process the gap in his teeth gets melded together by oh. electricity <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing Like it's not something I remember funny. it's ridiculous it's ridiculous they even have a shot where it's like the teeth come together and it's like <laughs> why Why would that be why would that I mean I could get on board That's with the electric funny. powers but why would it change his teeth is it supposed to be a metaphor for his character because from
1: what i remember he was very down on his luck and ignored and looked down on by everybody and then maybe like the teeth coming together is symbolic of that now-, now people are going to pay attention to me or well something. as
0: a gentleman with a small gap between his two front teeth i'm offended <laughs> sir well, I so, you offended. Should be. so you should be <laughs> look it's not it's not a great film it's not it's just an irritating film because i love spider-man i'm a big fan of spider-man as a character there are some good bits in it particularly Gwen Stacy uh, where sh- her character ends up there's a very nice poignant scene right right towards the end are you are we thinking of the same scene here because there's one I describe as quite a shocker and
1: I was impressed by it in in its shockingness. but I wouldn't describe it as nice and poignant
0: well uh, yeah I was trying to sort of allude to it without giving okay, away nice, nice, but anyway right. I think that scene <laughs> that kind of climactic scene between the two is really hits home in a big way okay But ultimately it's a failure and I think it's... Maybe you're right, it is reassuring the fact that this film bombed and therefore they... The whole idea, and yeah. Said, no matter, actually, you have done yeah. this wrong. It's, it isn't going to work. Avengers can die, you know. Suicide
1: Squad and Co. They can all go away, and I'm happy about that. I think <laughs> <laughs> is that is that lame to say?
0: I think that is a bit lame. I don't think you want think them the to die. You want them to be done well. If they're
1: bad, then they can be stopped. You don't have. We don't all have to continually suffer worsening franchises. That is a good thing in my. We book. can
0: expect more people. Anyway, the What's film the for me, I'd give it a C minus. I wow. think it's a really, really bad film uh that gets bogged down in its ambition and loses the main focus which is just a good story tell the story well tell the characters all there that's why they keep on making (laughs) spider-man films (laughs) we've got it man
1: well i guess there might be some hope for tom holland's uh, spider-man i'm thinking not there we go (laughs) optimism right i'm gonna move on with birdman how did we end up here this place is horrible we had it all you were a movie star, remember?
0: Who was this guy he used to be Birdman? I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your I adaptation. That's yeah. ambitious.
1: Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Hold the mask off. You, you <laughs> do my mask off. Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. Shut up. Oh, ah! You know
0: I'm right. <laughs> so nice hey what's up? why don't you try to rest a little bit face it dad you're doing this because you're scared to death like the rest of us then you don't matter and you know what you're right you don't
1: I'm just. you're the original man let's make a comeback that's what I'm talking about you're a bird man you are a
0: god Music. He's a Hollywood clown in a Lycra bird suit. Yes, he is. But he's going out on that stage and risking everything.
1: It's about being a respected and validator, remember? That's what you told me. I got a chance to do something right. I got to take it. Let's go back one more time
0: and show them what we're capable of. Herman! I haven't seen this film since, but I saw it in the cinemas. I saw it in the cinemas when it was getting all that buzz. Would it win an Oscar? Mm. And I haven't really thought about it since. But now I'm intrigued to hear what you thought. Well, you do, haven't seen it. Can you
1: tell it. me, yeah, I, have, I have only seen it this week for the first time. You're right. Can you tell me what you thought of
0: it in that first time, Phil? I thought it was unforgettable for what it was. I thought it was technically massively impressive. But I sort of, I didn't like it. You didn't in some like ways. it? I liked loads of it but ultimately i found the the fee- i found the film exhausting that was my feeling of it because it does that whole one take thing yeah well i
1: mean let's let's start there yeah listen this film is famous i i guess really for hugely demonstrating uh, the combination of Alejandro Iñárritu who's the director's partnership with Emmanuel Lubezki who is a cinematographer and the film has these incredible long takes that were handheld uh, in a real theatre where the camera just it literally follows people through corridors, around corridors, it swirls around them in rooms it, it, there are really, really really long takes. I think it is made to look like oh, pretty much the whole film is one take. It is almost like that as well I think you can spot Disguised Cuts in various places but
0: certainly they don't want you to notice it the the impression that the director wants to give you is it's all one take
1: that's right yeah yeah even though it goes over three days or something like that yeah you're right and it is really impressive if you stop and think about it and it definitely contributes to the atmosphere of the film and I think that's why you're saying it was too much I think some people would feel seasick because there's the handheld thing the camera is constantly in motion because you can get really literally close to the actors when you're holding it there's almost a fisheye effect in some places where their faces leer right out out at you and you can have some tough angles and there's that sort of perpetual motion feeling it's, it's weird you don't notice it but actually when you have cuts even from a shot to b shot in a conversation
0: it feels like breathing space and it feels like you're
1: able to focus a lot better
0: well the comparison that i've always made when i was talking about this film with my friends and things uh after seeing it is that i feel like cuts and edits are like punctuation yeah. on a sentence and uh if you have sentences which don't have full stops or commas or or, or any of the punctuation, it's, it's difficult to read it. it. You lose breath. You don't have the energy to sustain that focus, and it, it rambles. And then I felt like this film was rambling slightly in a very impressive way, but it's like a stream of consciousness thing. And but it's it makes... so
1: intentional. I mean, that that belies that that's exactly the heart of the film, in my opinion. And we should say what it is. So, Birdman follows, oh, I can't remember the actor's name, Regan Thompson, I think he is. And he is an actor who became famous for playing Birdman, who is basically like Batman or a superhero uh, in some way. And it's kind of brave that they cast Michael Keaton, of course, because he was actually Batman at one point. And now that that part of his career is over, he said no to another Birdman. I think he did three and he said no to Birdman four. He's directing an adaptation of a novel. Novel on the stage, and he wrote the adaptation himself. He's directing it himself, and he's starring in it himself. And it's a Raymond Carver short story. What we talk about when we talk about love, I think, is what it is. His daughter is there, Emma Stone, and she's kind of his assistant, but she doesn't get on very well with him. Uh, he has to bring in Ed Norton, who plays Mike Shiner, a very well-respected Broadway star, to come in at the last minute and replace the guy. Who gets knocked out from a stage light. And he's got Andrea Risborough or Riseborough who he has some kind of relationship with, who's playing one of the women in the play, and then Naomi Watts is playing a first-time Broadway actor who's also part of the play. And the whole thing is around, can he get it together? Can he make it work? Can he impress the critics? Can he get the audience in? Is he washed up? Or does he actually have something to say? It's a sort of mega midlife crisis moment uh, for an actor who's past his prime and trying to branch out and prove to himself he's not just a celebrity who wears a bird costume and therefore it makes a lot of sense that it's all one take because you spend the entire film with him and you're supposed to experience it like him this kind of horrible mess that he's got himself into and you get the sense that he feels lost and he feels kind of motion sick with the speed of it all and and that when people talk to him it does feel like they're leering right into his face and he can't sort of cope uh with the chaos of everything and and all that's riding on it as well so I'd argue that it really contributes a lot to the premise of the film. I think Alejandro Iñárritu and in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff has said he wanted to really dig into the ego of the creative process. Like People have these ideas about how to make something and what it will mean to other people, but it's based on such fragile things. It's based on your emotions and your own uh, impression of yourself and, and your own self-worth, and exploring it this way, making it feel super unhinged and making you feel every... Uh, crisis uh, the way that Michael Keaton does, it's kind of an admirable attempt to put you into the shoes of someone doing something creative.
0: I do see that, and I do see what you're saying about how it's contributing to the themes and ideas of the film. I just think it actually ultimately distracts you from the film because you spend so much time sort of um, impressed by the technicality of what they're doing with the camera and how they're achieving it, and sort of it, it means that you don't have any focus. Like, cuts and edits put focus on... On things and and what things you should pay attention to, and this is just like a wash. It it means that while it might be very good what you're getting, there's no focus, and so you don't feel well, like the director telling why you. I as much. I disagree
1: with you because it all depends what the film is about, doesn't it? Is the film trying to tell the story of this? You know. Uh, play within a film. Is it trying to tell the story of this film getting out into production and getting in front of critics? Is that what it's about, or is it about him? Is it about him trying to figure out who he is and what he's doing and what his life looks like? Either way, you can still have edits in it. <laughs> of course, you can. But I, I, think I thought it was a masterpiece, listeners. I think it thoroughly deserved its best picture uh, Oscar, along with best director, everything else. I, I really think it's brilliant. And in particular, I really love the realization of the Birdman character when he turns up. I think that is perfectly done. There are so many ways it could have been cheesy or tacky or too referential, but it felt properly present and intimidating And I did find myself wondering, you know, I wonder whether these guys who play superheroes ever do feel like that, whether they have this weird sort of almost schizophrenic relationship. He ends uh, up talking to the Birdman, doesn't he? Well, and Birdman continually talks to him. And it's really funny as well. There's some really absurdist, surprising, comedic moments. And I, I wouldn't have put Alejandro uh you down as a, a comedic director at all I mean, listen, he also won the best picture for the revenant uh, in 2015 so I would have thought he's a dramatic uh, director but it's uh, it's hilarious and a big shout out has to go to Ed Norton I know you said this Phil while we're watching the trailer just then Best thing thing seen. seen it, I completely agree I almost didn't recognize the guy I thought he was absolutely terrific who knew that he could play such a smug uh, a sort of oddly eccentric Broadway actor but quite
0: winning actor as yeah, well yeah he's
1: really charming he seems cool and I didn't think Ed Norton could ever be cool Ed Norton's never seems cool I even specifically <laughs> tried on some jackets this weekend like the one that he wears at one point because I thought that's cool that's a cool look over there Uh, so yeah listeners I hope I'm in a way I'm doing a kind of stream of consciousness review to match the weird leery nature of the movie I I think it's terrific even even the ending because that divides quite a lot of people well this is exactly what I mean it all depends what the purpose of the film is if the if it's about story and it's about an event and it's about moments in time all that sort of stuff then the, the ending is tough to deal with if it's not really about that and it's about an exploration of a creative mindset when it's under pressure I think I think it's fine yeah
0: I feel like this would be a good film to do on the, the, the movie clinic, but we need somebody to suggest it. So if anyone <laughs> wants to hear us talk about Birdman in depth and what it's saying and meaning, then do suggest it, please. Yeah, that be fun. I- And I think, listeners, I'll give it an A. I wouldn't give it an A plus because I think the subject matter, as
1: fascinatingly put together as it is, I don't find actors obsessing over acting (laughs) that interesting. Do you not? Not really. And I think it really shows the truth of what people say, which is that Hollywood loves a movie about Hollywood, doesn't it? It does. It really does. It really, really, really does. But it is still brilliant and breathtaking, uh, technically, Michael Keaton is fantastic
0: as well. He really is. And funnily enough, <laughs> having done this film about Birdman, he's going to play a Birdman in the new Spider Man film. How strange. He's going to be vulture, the vulture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, Emma Stone is in this film and was in The Amazing <laughs> Spider Man 2. Oh, well,
1: that, look, these little links.
0: Links everywhere. Yeah, there we go. Who knew?
1: Uh, listeners, let us know your thoughts on both those. SuperBaileyBros at gmail.com, at SuperBaileyBros on Twitter. Uh, that's it. That's it. Well, that's what we've been watching. Okay, emails and tweets time. A few to get through. Thanks so much, everyone, for getting in touch. Uh, First up, at Belly Bros from Nicholas. Fully agree with Benedict Seal on Split. Plus one to you Benedict uh, and I think Benedict already knows that because uh, this is all happening on Twitter well done Benedict and he uh, tweeted a, a few other things as well he gave you a plus one film for two towers saying that was the best in the Lord of the Rings chilo- trilogy <laughs> yes, trilogy yes, yes I'd like to thank see you one very much yes please yep I'll take that <laughs> Any day and Benedict also picked up another plus one from Nicholas for get out it, uh, in fact Nicholas said it was the best movie of the year so far truly wow. original experience that makes you think
0: I still I, I, I want to see it but I don't want to see it and, uh...
1: yeah I know what you mean he's still doling out the plus ones Phil you get one for the handmaiden Yeah, and he, he describes uh, Park uh, Chan-wook as the twisty Korean David Fincher
0: <laughs> yeah that's I think that's a very good comparison uh, just, yeah he, he does say you forgot to mention the live octopus I mean, that's right at the end, and I don't want to spoil it or anything like that, but uh, yeah, very creepy, for sure.
1: Mm, 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 Interesting. Okay. Oh, sorry. And he did actually ask us one other question. Which did better for hashtag dumb action movie, Fast 8 or Triple X the third? Now, that is a really good question, Nicholas, because I know that I reviewed them both quite similarly. I think Fast and Furious 8 has probably got more appeal but I do have a soft spot for Triple X. I, I think the thing with Triple X is it, it is bad and in particular the way that the female characters treat Vin Diesel is just reprehensible <laughs> in every way. Uh, then he also says, Phil, one for you, hashtag 90s remake, Beauty and the Beast versus Ghost in the Shell versus Power Rangers. I can tell
0: you Power Rangers does not win. I'd say Ghost in the Shell would win. I think Ghost in the Shell was great. I really enjoyed seeing that film. Uh, I think Beauty and the Beast the the cartoon holds up. Why not just watch that one? Yeah,
1: I think we're in agreement there as well. Ghost The Ghost in the Shell thing, I really do want to say to people because it's being slammed in the press and its box office figures are not impressive. And even though, you know, I have a personal stake in this because I said it would do well and it hasn't, I still think people should give it a watch.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's unlike lots of films you would watch. It's a very fresh film compared to lots of other Hollywood blockbusters. And
1: you'll enjoy it, I think. It is enjoyable, especially the sci-fi world. It's nice to disappear into that every now and
0: again. So that's both of us saying give it a go, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Esther got in touch, gave me a plus one for Fellowship of the Ring being the best. Thanks very much, Esther. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. We need to throw out these opinions more, Phil. I'm enjoying (laughs) it. (laughs) We'll just do a little (laughs)
0: board. This is our feeling on this film. On that line, Back to the Future 2 is the best one. Do you
1: actually think so? Number two? Yeah, I think it's great. Again, the first is the best.
0: I think Back to the Future 2's got some of the best scenes in the whole trilogy.
1: It's got the, the fantastic sequences where there are two Martys. Exactly. Uh, two Martys, that's brilliant. That's an unbeatable bit of filmmaking, but I think the first Back to the Future no, 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 is, is See, more
0: enjoyable from start to finish. That's Back, to I said. Fe- Back to the Future 2 <laughs> is, uh, the only reason people, are, the reason why people don't like it is because of that dark, sort of dark timeline where Biff Biff is it's, the... I don't, uh, I don't not like that. I just think the first is a more complete
1: package. It goes to a really dark place, man. Mm-hmm. That's why people mm-hmm. can't handle the darkness. It's like the Empire Strikes Back, you think. <laughs> <Yeah>. of, uh, <laughs> Back to the Fe- anyway, well, there you go. You've fishing for plus ones by any chance no i just thought what you said it's interesting uh-huh, let's uh-huh. throw it out there see what people think there we go more martin got in touch and he said i finally had some time off over christmas so time to catch up on some films he watched miss peregrine's home for peculiar children uh, which i reviewed ages ago now he says a lot of fun kids loved it though it was pretty scary for them one had to go upstairs and hide for a bit uh, but they all started rewatching it the following morning i think it's the best person for a while although i liked frank and weenie have you seen Frankenweenie? Actually, I haven't seen Frankenweenie. I heard good things about that one, yeah. Okay, but I'm so glad you like that, Martin. I did quite enjoy Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. I think that's one that will do great rounds on TV in the spooky season. <laughs> that's Ace Butterfield, isn't it? Yeah, you didn't like him. You told me he had an annoying face. He does have an annoying face. I think you and I feel very differently about him because I also liked uh, that other one about going to Mars. What was that called again? The Space Between Us. And he's done that. <laughs> Stupid face. No, I think he's good. And there's a sequence on Brighton Pier in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Oh, no, Blackpool Pier, I think it is, actually. That is so surreal and brilliant I I really liked it I'd still recommend that if you uh, got you know kids and you want a slightly spooky but fun adventure Uh, he says he watched Whiplash 2 recently and loved it great film I love that film so much J.K. Simmons is unbelievably good and so is Miles Teller an amazing film he says he
0: can't wait to watch La La Land what a talent Chazelle is he really is I I, I think All that razzmatazz around La La Land and whether or not it deserved all the attention it got and things, I think it kind of got lost in the hype around it. Mm. This is a really talented filmmaker and I can't wait for his next film. He's such a young guy as well.
1: Is he the youngest ever? He won Best Direct to age 32.
0: It's crazy, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Uh, he
1: says, was it Whiplash that got us talking about ambiguous endings? Was it Whiplash?
0: We definitely talked about Whiplash uh, as a, an ambiguous ending. What does it really mean? What's that final shot sort of saying? What does it say about their relationship? What does yeah. it say about... We could talk about that one. That'd be, fun. That'd be a, to a good, good film clinic, clinic as well. <laughs> uh, Martin says, I thought the way he
1: ended the film was a stroke of genius. The shot of J.K. Simmons' eyes while he's smiling has to be one of the best I've ever seen.
0: It certainly is just the most exciting kind of bizarre scenario for an ending of a film mm. because who'd have thought a guy playing drums and a guy waving his hands would be so dramatic so oh totally hooking. it's weird to
1: leave it with so much energy because there's a lot of energy in there's so film. much energy that doesn't exactly close it I mean, off yeah. it's very impressive uh quick line uh re X ex machina really stands up to rewatch. have to disagree with you there martin i wasn't a big fan phil you're wrong it. laurie it's uh-huh, great uh-huh. and check this out phil hated kingsman oh Check this, this is a good paragraph. What a I wonder waste, why you think it's a good What paragraph. a waste of everyone's time. Everyone involved should be ashamed of themselves. Plus one to whoever hated what, that one. That's me, just saying. Uh, the office covered with the sun front pages is the most pathetic bit of product placement ever conceived by a moron at Fox.
0: I do think, I do think that's uh, an unfortunate thing, but I also noticed that and I thought maybe it was sort of saying look, the newspapers, they don't, they're do not they not interested in what uh, what I do as a spy. Listen, these are the front pages when I've done something amazing and it's nothing to do with me. Mm. And that was the point. And the thing is as well, this is an independent film, so it needs to get sponsorship and funding, and that's how they do it. So I'm willing to forgive the film, even though I agree with you. It's like, oh, why would you have the sun everywhere? I think if it means that they can make independent films without having to get studios involved and sort of changing the product – that's, I'm willing to accept it. that's an un, I'm actually surprised there, Martin. That was a fairly well reasoned point there by Phil. <laughs> I'll tell you,
1: I'm good at so it. I think you're going to have to come back at him because he says he almost stopped watching it at that point. But then he says, "Glad I made it to the end to see the final shot. Otherwise, I would have thought the sun office was the worst thing about the film." And we talked about that last shot, yes, didn't we? we? Did it is annoyingly. It just you just can't avoid it. It's it's frustrating the way it shouts at you. Uh, with its eyebrows raised or whatever yeah it's annoying that I film.
0: think that, that film is entirely about what you feel the filmmakers are intending yeah, I think that's I it. he also added one nice thing for you Phil a plus one which I
1: can't really give because it should be for should be for <laughs> film reviews he says plus one to Phil a huge plus one for Tesco's Finest Made me laugh so much. Oh, I'm glad about that. That's good. Yeah, maybe, I'll take maybe that. Maybe that'll forgive you for Kingsman. The fact Plus, you one humor. <laughs> Plus one humour. Plus one humour. That's great. <laughs> he says, I'll never be able to think of that film without imagining a packet of Cumberland sausages. And that was their <laughs> finest, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, very good. Okay, listeners, thank you so much. Those are emails and tweets for this week. Keep them coming. Superbaileybros at gmail.com at Superbaileybros on Twitter. We always love getting your thoughts. Big or small, we love them all. <laughs> Gotta stop saying that. You I said it. I did, want your that thing. To become, <laughs> I did not want that to become a catchphrase. I won't deal with it. You, that don't, get my to, accidental you don't get chops. to choose the name the public gives you, man. <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks
0: okay listeners that is this week's episode done we've managed to get through lots of films hopefully you've enjoyed one or two of those and maybe learnt a couple of things to avoid we'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, those films we reviewed The Promise Guardians of the Galaxy 2 or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 (laughs) and Lady Macbeth so if you've seen any of those films and you have thoughts email them in superbailyberries at gmail.com and also if you've got any thoughts on what we said about what we've been watching or any movie clinic suggestions uh, just get them in we'd love to hear from you and uh, thanks very much for checking out the episode Laurie I'm doing all the talking help me help me that's what i'm talking about man it's normally me because with the outro when you
1: start it's very hard to stop because you get a list in your head and you just keep <laughs> going uh so hopefully phil you won't have an earache uh, or a very important test next week
0: yeah hopefully i'll be able to just you know just be my regular best
1: Your regular best all right thanks very much for listening listeners stay in touch and we'll see you next week Ciao, Phil, ciao. So i've got a couple of possible bonuses for you Would you like to choose again? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So one of them is purely about cricket and the odd social things that happen in it. Next. And the next one is about toddlers and their I found this routine. Next.
0: Next. No, that's it. Really, that's too. Right. Oh, not the best selection. I don't well, know. Maybe... You don't know what they're
1: going to turn out to be. I don't be. know. Let's
0: uh, let's go. What would listeners want to hear? I feel like you say a lot about kids. So let's go with cricket. Okay. All right. So when I was walking with my children,
1: <laughs> sorry, oh, um, no, no, you're no, I don't. Oh man, I was oh, like, oh no, that's man. not that's that's <laughs> part of it. <laughs> no, no, I like hearing doing. your stories about your children. <laughs> yeah, you better. Right. Um, <laughs> my family and I were walking through a park, and in Oxford, often they're university parks. This one is actually called. University parks, so amidst the beautiful trees and pathways and rivers it 's a very nice park yeah. it 's a very nice park. There was also a university cricket match going on, which meant uh, lots of young lads in their cricket whites. It was just lads in this case i 'm sure it can be ladies as well uh, and playing a very serious game and it 's never really struck me before because i don 't often watch cricket live these days, maybe I watch the highlights every now and again. That there's a lot of standing around in cricket, isn't there? Oh yeah, it's like famous for it, man. But not just standing around. I just, I stood there and watched for a while and I, I just became entranced by the way people like the non-batting batsmen behave when cricket's going on. Because <laughs> listeners, if you don't know, I'm sure most of you do, then you have two batsmen. You have one at one wicket and one at the other, but the bowler only bowls at one at a time. So one batsman is in action until they start running and then maybe i will switch over. That's how it works. Mm. So the batsman who's not receiving the ball, like, it's just amazing to watch what they do, because clearly these young guys who are very athletic guys, they're like practically jocks, right? And jocks are kind of like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And they, and they had phrases like, come on, X-Man, all that sort of stuff. They had nicknames for each other. They were shouting it all the time. <laughs> so he just sort of taps the ground constantly with his bat, as if he's found a spot on the, on the wicket that really needs patting it. He's like, oh, let me just sort that out. <laughs> but he doesn't just do that. He sort of leans kind of theatrically like, Taps it, almost like uh, Fred Astaire tapping his cane into the ground. Can you picture that? <laughs> He's
0: practicing his tap dance And the then team.
1: even better than that, if the, uh, the batsman receiving the ball, I mean, nine times out of ten listeners, you'll notice if you watch cricket, they just do a forward defensive shot and the ball yeah. trickles away from them so they don't, you know, shatter their shins or whatever it is. Yeah. And often the, the forward defensive shot will just put the ball slightly past the other batsman at the other end of the wicket. And if, time and time again, this batsman who's not involved would do the kind of, he'd reach out with his bat as if to stop the ball but he wouldn't really reach out. He'd almost pretend to do it. And then having missed the ball, he'd just hold his bat there for a little while and then kind of theatrically bring it back and then start practising his shots again. It was amazing. Like, next time you go and watch a cricket match, watch the not-batting batsman <laughs> and the theatrics the guy goes through to justify the fact that he gets to be called a
0: sportsman. He's just there, you know. He's got nothing to do. Well, he's... just
1: stand there then. Check, check your phone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, because he's got to be ready to run at any moment, man. I'm but sure only, you're offending but many but only cricket in fans. the moments where the bowler is actually bowling at the other batsman.
1: That's only like five seconds out of 20 minutes. Anyway, that's just what I thought,
0: Phil. Cricket's a very odd game. Very odd game. We used to be all right today, didn't we? I think you were all right. I never really played it.
1: I got asked to try out for the school team. And uh, at the time, I said, no, you know, I want to hang out with my friends more. (laughs) It's one of my big regrets.
0: I only played uh, sports uh, for school once, and it was a cricket match. And I remember I got a ball to the face. And it didn't really hurt that much But it hurt enough That I was like I don't really want to play cricket anymore So I made our dad come and collect me (laughs) So I left the game early But I probably could have stayed I think he was a bit annoyed Just think You could have been pulling Ridiculous shapes uh, On the non-batting wicket film Yeah you know Busting out some moves Doing the robot
1: There we go So are you satisfied with that As a bonus? Yeah You sure? The other one was better (laughs) I want to say what it is (laughs) You can do it next time Okay What a talent Chazelle is What a talent (laughs) Yep, that jingle means It
0: it's time for. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> blooper, blooper. <laughs>